All right, well, again, uh, welcome. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm also one of the pastors here at Damascus Road. Glad you guys were able to join us for the one service we're doing this morning. Uh, men that came with their families, I'm proud of you. Nice work. Um, I had to call in the cavalry. My mom and dad came up uh, this weekend. So, uh, yeah, couldn't, couldn't do four-on-one. Um, so glad that they're here with us as well. Um, since the beginning of the year, so I'll be going back to January, we've been in the book of First Corinthians. And we started out uh, by saying that, that doctrine is important, namely the person and work of Jesus Christ matters. And it matters in a way that should unify the church more so than any teacher, regardless of how charismatic they are, how well-liked they are. What unifies us first and foremost is Jesus Christ crucified and risen. And then the, the letter shifted a couple months ago from doctrine, truth about who God is, to practice. How do we actually live our lives in response to that? And so for the past month, uh, we've been going through chapter 7, talking about marriage, singleness, sexuality, uh, divorce. If you missed any of those, they're online. Um, they, they were uh, very challenging and, and, and fantastic. I didn't preach them, so I know they were good. Um, and so now we are in chapter 8 where Paul kind of sets that issue aside and moves on to talk about something um, that is uh, uh, also challenging the Corinthian church. The church apparently had a lot of issues. And that is, and um, namely, how we should engage with culture and a society filled with rampant idolatry while still being faithful to Christ um, and, and to God and to our brothers and sisters. So if you would, turn with me to Corinthians chapter 8. We just, I love opening with God's Word before I get too deep in, into screwing things up. So um, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, I'm going to go through the whole chapter and then um, and preach through it. So chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there's many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. The Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former associations with idols, eating food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers, And wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. This is God's word. That last verse is probably the most challenging verse in the entire New Testament. No eating meat. Um, Just way in confession, Friday, wife gone. I had steak, shrimp with a side of bratwurst. Um, There was no vegetables. Um, And so, uh, yeah, yeah. So, all right. So what's what's going on here, though? Right? Because obviously I'm not going to stand up here as a hypocrite and tell tell you guys to not eat meat, right? Um, There's a lot going on, and I think it's easy for us in in our modern context to kind of just write this off as as, uh, archaic because we don't really deal, it seems like, with food offered to idols. It kind of seems historically and maybe culturally distant from from our experience. And yet, as I'm preparing, um, uh, just two weeks ago, a national article uh, that in, in Dearborn, Michigan, a McDonald's was sued for three quarters of a million dollars because somebody ate a chicken sandwich that was not halal, which is the Islamic law on how you prepare uh, meat. And so they were mad because they didn't get God-honoring food at a McDonald's. Uh, and so, um, 
Yeah, so, you know, it, it's funny, but, but they literally sued because this chicken sandwich wasn't blessed to the God Allah and prepared under their dietary restrictions, right? And then there, there's easily, you know, other ways in which we kind of do struggle or have issues. Some of us have real legit dietary restrictions, right? Gluten intolerance. Um, somebody's, some people are, are vegetarians, uh, veganism, uh, all sorts of, uh, of you know, hormone-free. Uh, you know, we all have ways in which we look at food. And while we may see a, a kosher label um, or a halal label or something like that, the reality is um, it's not that big of a challenge for us because particularly here in the U.S., we have so many options. You know, there are, there are vegetarian restaurants. You can go online and find whatever your little dietary issues might be. You, you can find what you need. It may be difficult, but it's not overwhelming. Well, for Paul and for the church in Corinth, this, this was actually really different because um, in first century Roman society, all of food culture, all of it, everything you ate was tied in some way, shape, or form to the religious, political, and social life of the community. So eating in itself was an act of worship. And so when Paul's writing this letter uh, to the church, um, there's, there's an emperor in Rome. Excuse me. It's, um, it's Nero. If you've ever know your Roman history, Nero was, was the crazy Caesar um, that, that basically torched Christians and, and was, was famous for fiddling while, war, um, while Rome uh, burned to the ground. And so, um, but he was worshipped within society as the son of God, as equal with all things from the beginning, as sent from a savior. And so at every sporting event, every public gathering, every meal, whether it was public or private, people would pledge allegiance to the emperor, not in the same way that we would necessarily pledge allegiance to the flag or sing the Star Spangled Banner, but literally uh, as a form of, of worship. And so you come to a place like, like Corinth, where um, in, in Corinth and in all the other cities, there were associations called collegia. It's where we get the word college from. Where, where every aspect of your life was bound together in some sort of community or family society that, that regardless of whether it was political or philosophical or maybe it had to do with your business or your occupation or your nationality, whatever your identifiers were, whatever those things that you say make up who you are, there was an association that went along with it. And part of their regular gatherings was getting together for a meal. Now, we encourage this a lot, right, in our society for people to get together and share a meal. But this was, this was different because every single one of these societies actually had a patron deity on its own. So you have Caesar, who's the God Almighty over all. And then every little society, whether you're a fireman or whether you're on a little league team or whatever you're at, has its own patron God. And so you go to a place like Corinth, and there's actually over a dozen pagan temples that outline the city square that also served basically as, as restaurants. If you wanted to eat in Corinth in public, you were going to a temple. And so what would happen in these, in these uh, uh, meetings, in, in these dinners, actually it was quite elaborate, and it's important for us to, to know that it would start out with like, like a two-hour cocktail hour. So you're hungry, it's the end of the day, you haven't eaten at all, and now you're drinking alcohol for two hours straight, and then, and then there's some entertainment during that time, which was highly sexualized, so it's probably, uh, well, not, don't use your imagination, highly sexualized entertainment, okay? And so the whole purpose of the first couple hours is just to get drunk and, and sin sexually. Then you come to the middle of the feast, the pinnacle, the, the, okay, now we're getting serious. And at that point, you're having a drink offering that is poured out to Caesar as God and Savior of the world. We are all, as we gather together, going to remember that Caesar is God and saved us, and we're going to have a drink together. And then you'd go on to the food. And the food was some meat that was sacrificed to an idol. As it is being, um, as it is being prepared, as it, uh, and all that, it's all being worshipped to whatever the idol of the society or the house of the temple was. 
and then you, you come and eat. And so, so it's, it's these long, elaborate banquets with the whole purpose of worship. And so this is a challenge because... This is a challenge because uh, in the middle of the uh, dining room as well would actually be a physical representation of the God. There would be a statue of the God in the middle. So in the middle of your table, the God would be over you. Symbolically saying, this God is with us as you eat. You are worshiping to what you see in front of you. And so this is a a really challenging situation for the church in Corinth to navigate because every day, you're getting an invitation from your, uh, from your workers guild or from whatever else. Come to this temple and enjoy a meal as we honor Caesar, honor this God. And, and it was a constant issue. Except that in Corinth, um, in Corinth, um, they, they uh, really didn't see it as much of an issue. They just kind of dove in. The only folks in the whole town that didn't participate were the Jews of the day because they kind of had their own subculture. They had, their, they had their own temples, their own meetings and everything, and they would not engage at all. But for every non-Jew in a Roman city, it was expected that you would be at these functions. And to withdraw is to basically quit your job or to quit your family or say, I'm never playing sports again or I'm never doing what, whatever. And so the, the church in Corinth just said, whatever, we'll just do it. It's not a big deal. These are just idols. They're not really God. And so where most of this letter is Paul answering questions that the church had, it's actually highly possible the church didn't even ask a question about this. They just said, no, we we know. We have knowledge. We're smart. We're just going to participate. Paul, we disagree with you. We know better, and we know best. And so they just kind of dove in. And so Paul, at the beginning uh, of this chapter, starts addressing what's happening And before he can even address the issue of idolatry or or food idols or or anything like that, he has to go to the issue of the Corinthian heart. Before you can even answer surface questions, they usually come from from deeper issues. Oftentimes, Sam or myself or other elders will get emails from folks, even new folks, or, or have somebody come right up to us, and they're asking us some deep theological question. Where does your church rest on this? It's like, hi, nice to meet you. Um, never don't know who you are. Uh, but it usually ends up coming from some other deeper issue. And so he, he goes deeper and it says um, that the outward issue of their public uh, behavior, he can't even deal with that until he actually shines a light on their inward attitude. And, and the, the issue that they have is namely that their knowledge has led them to pride. And to be quite clear, pride is the opposite of a genuine Christian spirit. And it's not just that they're knowledgeable, they have a specific knowledge. He's talking about theological knowledge. What they believe about God. What they believe about who Jesus is. What they believe about salvation. What they believe about what the church is and how the church should act. How it should engage with the world. Even how how Christians should behave. And so, honestly, I ask myself, what could go wrong? They're just studying about good things. Right? Right? Studying about God, studying about Jesus, studying about the church. If you don't know, one of our core values, our first core value here at Damascus Road, we call is gospel truth. That's why we spend time on Sunday opening God's word and preaching. That's why we invite you to classes. Um, That's why we get you into small groups so that you can study God's word together. We love knowledge. We want people to know more about God. And and so for the express purpose of of, learning about who he is, But the challenge is, for this church and and for us, is that knowledge on its own, particularly knowledge about God, can artificially inflate who you are. Um, I'm not going to do the action because my wife said it looks goofy, but think about when you're like at the gas station or at the um, car dealerships and there's there's big air balloon guys that, dang it, I started to do it, um, you know, kind of flail their arms around, right? They're big. You can see them from, from a mile away, but they're empty. There's nothing in them. And, and, and Paul says, that's what knowledge does. You're just a big balloon. And, and he's about to pop it because they knew about God and they become arrogant. And the challenge is, is that arrogance and pride ends up leading to conceit for other Christians or other people that don't know as much about God as you do. 
I was telling my wife, I'm really struggling with how my, this personally applies to me on a text where you get frustrated with people that know less than you. And she goes, really? You're struggling with how that applies to you? I do this all the time. And, and, and it does because you, you kind of roll your eyes. You lose patience. And Paul says, no, that is, that is not the, the highest value. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. See, knowledge can be so intimidating within Christian community. I remember the first time as I'm, as I'm coming back to church, coming back to the gospel and, and, and wanting to, to grow in my faith, they, they told me to go to a community group. The church said, go to a small group. And I go to a small group at a guy's house. And there's six or eight other people there. And he says, okay, for the next six weeks, we're going to be studying this book. And he throws down this volume that was twice as thick as my Bible. And I'm like, I don't even know what's in this book yet. How can I know to study all this? And he just, he had no patience for me. He said, you know, come on, man, you got to step it up. And I'm like, wow, okay. So then I just left community. I wanted nothing to do with, with that group. I, I was so intimidating um, but because his knowledge puffed up. It says love builds up. See, knowledge on its own puffs up an individual and does very little to help anyone else. And so the reason that is is because it lacks humility. And one of the the greatest uh, shifts for me in the last few years is, is constantly reminding myself that any study of God, the creator of the entire universe, who ordained all things into existence and holds all things together by the power of His will, any study of Him in comparison to me should not lead to any sort of pride, but to greater humility as I have an understanding of how big and how great and how mighty He is and how insignificant, imperfect, and insufficient I am. And that's what makes the cross of Jesus Christ bigger, right? Because it bridges that gap between a great and powerful and holy God and us as broken sinners. And so, Paul ends up giving this riddle in verse 2. He says, you think you know a lot about God. But in fact, he says, you know next to nothing. He says, your knowledge has become completely useless. He goes on, and we'll get to, to Corinthians chapter 13 in, in, a, in, a, in a few weeks. It says, um, and you may know this from, from weddings usually, but he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and, and if I have all faith as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So, Apparently, love, on the other hand, as opposed to knowledge, has the ability to build real and lasting Christian character in us as individuals. And more than that, it it pours out and moves beyond us to build up others in their understanding of the faith. See, I I often resist this concept because I I wrongly believe that that love um, ends up being weak or mindless. And so I, I, I want to end up erring on the side of truth or being right rather than being loving. And love can be mindless. It can be folly. We'll, we'll get into that. But, but the, the reality is it, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. Right? Paul's not pitting knowledge of truth against love. See, knowledge needs to be empowered by love. And so knowledge and love are dance partners with love leading the dance. All right, wait. Women are gone, right? Uh, We got the the men here. Love is a boat. Sorry, knowledge is a boat. Okay? Knowledge is a boat, right? If you have holes in your boat, it will sink. I've been on a sinking boat, as has my father. And so it sinks. But love is the engine. You will not go anywhere in your boat of knowledge unless it's being powered by love. And so love is empowering. And the reason it's empowering is because it comes not from our knowledge about God, but because God knows us. See, that kind of flips things on its head. God is the source. And we can know about God, but it's meaningless if we're not known by God. 
And he says his love for us will lead us to love others. 1 John 4 uh, and verse 10 says, this is love. You want to know what love is? This is what it is. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, all the knowledgeable folks are like, yep, I know the word propitiation. Everybody else is like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, That just means that God, Jesus, in our place, absorbs all the wrath of sin that we deserve. And, And he goes on and he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And so, if knowledge without love is arrogance and pride, love without knowledge is foolishness and folly. See, it's possible as a people and as individuals that we may lack love from time to time. Especially here in the Northwest, we're kind of a a cold and, and distant people most of the time. We don't see the sun very often, right? But if we lack love sometimes, we definitely lack knowledge. And our struggles are often less with theological arrogance. I don't have as many conversations with folks that are theologically arrogant. But I constantly encounter people that are biblically ignorant. And so, if you want to truly, if you want to truly know someone, If you want to know God, you have to know things about them which are actually true. And so, I I think about it this way. If If I tell you that I love my wife because she's six feet tall and has short, dark hair and loves wakeboarding, I don't love my wife because she's not any of those things. She hates wakeboarding, and we still got married anyway. And and so, but you, you... You have to know true things about that what you love. And God says, because you've been loved by him, you you love. And because you love, you seek to know more about that which you love. Right? That was never more evident than last week is where all the men are getting together for meet and skeet. I didn't have to ask anybody to tell me about their gun. They all just told me about it because they studied it and they knew it well and wanted to share the good news of their AR-15 with me on on everything that that, uh, is is cool about it. But love leads to knowledge. You want to know more about what you love. And, and, And when you know more about it, it stirs your affections. That's not always the case. But with God, it definitely stirs our affection because the more you know about God, the more you're going to love him. That's not true the more you know about sports figures or politicians or your job. Usually it starts out pretty good, and then the more you know about somebody, the less and less they they measure up. But not so with God. your, your, Your knowledge of him grows, your affections for him grow, and it leads to greater love. And so Paul then shifts and starts reminding the Corinthians about what is true. He says, there are things that are true about God, and there is fiction. And, see, the Corinthians, they weren't necessarily wrong about the true nature of their city's idols. Right? They looked around their city and saw, this is, this is not the one true God. And so, um, they, they, they were right. They were just kind of incomplete in their understanding. Paul, Paul agrees with them. He says, yeah, there's, there, there, there's really nothing behind idols necessarily. But we don't have necessarily a lot of temples, right, in, in our society. But an idol is just anything worshipped that is ultimately empty. And that may be something that you worship physically, whether that's, that's your job or, or leisure or an activity or even your family that ultimately will fail you. Or it may even be something spiritual. You may be worshiping a God who is not the God of the Bible, who is not, as Paul says, the one true God. And so idols, he says, they, they have no power, no real power. They have power to enslave you, but no actual power to save you. And so when you, when you cry out to them, they don't respond. See, all of the temples in Corinth... And all of the idols we build up in our own lives are made by our own hands. And the Bible is consistent from the beginning to end that when you make your own God and you don't worship the one true God, the Bible mocks that. The Bible condemns that. God condemns that. 
in uh, Isaiah 46, verses 5 and 7, it says, Those, meaning idolaters, who lavish gold from the purse, weigh out silver on the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god, they then fall down and worship. And then they lift it on their shoulders, and they carry it, and set it in its place, and it stands there. And it cannot move from its place. And if one cries out to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. All the idols in Corinth, man-made. All of our idols, man-made. And so, in Corinth, and today, there is a plethora of gods and lords begging for our time, for our money, for our energy, um, for our worship and our devotion. And each of them kind of have their own individual spheres. Right? This is how I worship my family. This is how I worship my job. This is how I worship uh, my spirituality. This is how I worship sports. This is how I worship hobbies. This is how I worship leisure. Whatever it is, they all have individual spheres. And some are evil and wicked, and even some are demonic, but many are just simply good things that we have turned into God things. Things that God gave us as a gift to enjoy that we have then elevated above our enjoyment of God. And they're all ultimately meaningless. And God says, or Paul says rather, it's not loving to the pagan world to encourage and continue the worship of idols when there's only one worthy of our worship. It's not loving to encourage them to do that. Verse 6 in in this chapter echoes uh, all the way back to Deuteronomy in what is called the Shema which uh, the, the, the Jews would, would recite multiple times a day. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And Paul takes that, and he moves beyond kind of that elementary truth of one God and creator overall. And, and, and he says, more than that, he's a loving father whose sphere is over everything. He doesn't just own a little part of your life. And he says, we come from him. He says, we live for him. He is both our origin, where we came from, and our goal, what we aspire to, and who we aspire to be. He says, more than that, he is united with the Son, Jesus Christ. And so our life comes from the Father, but our life comes through the Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Jesus prepares us through the cross, through his resurrection, for, for a new creation. He says, that is where you're going to find life, not in worthless idols. One of the first sermons uh, preached in the New Testament after Jesus ascends, Peter says um, to a huge crowd of people, there is salvation in no one else, and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Talking about Jesus. And then Paul tells Timothy, there is one God. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And then Jesus tells John in Revelation, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, which means the beginning and the end. He says, I am the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And he ends with the Almighty. That's what the Romans called Caesar. And Jesus says, no, I am the Almighty. And so, such, this is simple doctrinal clarity. It should be simple. It's, it's what we, as, as Christians would say, this is Christianity 101. I'm not, hopefully, if you're a Christian, I'm not teaching you anything new, right? But it was, it's necessary for Paul to remind the Corinthians, just as it's necessary for us to be reminded of this in a world filled with spiritual confusion. See, our society's biggest value Above everything else is to coexist, right? You've all seen the bumper stickers? Got every, like, major religion's little symbol all spelled out, coexist. The cross is at the end, right? I know it's how it's spelled, whatever. But the, the, the reality is we all want to, you can coexist all you want unless it's about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ on the cross, crucified and risen as the only way to know God and be saved from our sins, Right? But that's our, our society's biggest value. And, and they, what I just said right there is offensive. 
It's offensive to people that worship any of those other symbols. It's even offensive to people that claim to be Christians and know a whole ton about God, but don't live their lives as if they're known by God. Because that's, that's putting a stake in the ground. See, we're to worship Him. And, and so, being ignorant of these truths is not bliss. It's destruction. Because idolatry is, is, is fiction. It's, it's not true. And so, it's, it's more loving to our world, to our friends, to our families, to our coworkers, to know this truth, to hold up this truth, to glorify this truth, to find joy in this truth of who Jesus is, and to woo people to this truth than it is in any way, shape, or form to affirm or encourage or celebrate people's idolatry. You're not telling people to not worship. You're encouraging to worship something worth worshiping, to worship something more, to worship something better. And so, idolatry and this fiction, it's, it's not a game because it's actually at the heart of sin. It is an affront to God who made us for his glory and for our joy to worship anything less than him. And so we are called, you are called to repent, to actually turn away from worshiping your idols and to worship God. And so that is what the Christian life is, one of always repenting. And and we're to bow to Jesus, we're to follow Jesus. And more than that, It's going to actually change the way we live our life. A life that is devoted to the idols of this world, when compared to a life that is devoted to worshiping the one God who is creator over everything, should and will look different. The circumstances may be the same. You're not guaranteed more prosperity or health or happiness, but your heart and your actions in your circumstances will be different. That's why as Christians, we actually call each other to action and say, your faith is fine, but if it's powered by love and knowledge of who God is, it's going to change the way you live. That's how you're going to show. That's how you're going to demonstrate the fruits uh, of the Spirit. And so Paul moves to this, uh, through this basic Christianity 101 and says, yeah, this, this is basic. And yet, he says, not everyone possesses this knowledge. He's talking actually about other Christians. He says, not everyone knows how the truth of the gospel impacts each area of a believer's life yet. Think back, if, you, if you've been a Christian for a while, think back to when you became one. If you're a new Christian, this is maybe more, more real for you, but when you came to Christ... Or when, when the Holy Spirit changed your heart and, and you bowed down and worshipped and served Jesus, the next day, not every aspect of your life looked dramatically different yet, did it? It was a process. There's a growth. There's, 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 there's slow changing as each day, each week, each month, you look more and more like Christ and less and less like the person you used to be. And Paul says, not everybody knows what all you knowledgeable people know. They're still coming and growing in their conscience. And so, we all have been called from Christ as individual sinners. Right? We talk about that regularly. That we all come as individual sinners. And he calls us together as a people. But because we're all individual sinners, because we all have our personal histories, think about your story, where you came from. It's probably very different than even the person sitting next to you. We all have our own different experiences. We all have our own flavors of sin. Areas you struggle with, but other people don't. Areas you don't struggle in that they do. So we start out really disunified. Because we're all coming from different points and different places. But as we grow in the knowledge of Christ and the love of God, we come together. We draw closer together and have greater and greater unity. But the reality is, During that process, 
our conscience, which is really our understanding of how the gospel impacts our life, our consciences are different. And that's okay. Because it's not about where you're at, it's about where you're going and where you've come from. And so, we can look at the same issue. This room, we can all look at the same issue, whatever it may be, and come to different conclusions and still be under God's grace. Now, there's certain things that God's clear about, but this issue, as far as the food of the idols, there seems to be a gray area in some sense. It's not exactly clear uh, how it should be. And so, I I got to see this played out uh, a couple months ago. Most of you know my story that when I was in college, I was in a fraternity, and, and that led into a very dark period of my life. It, it literally led me into sin because my understanding of how the gospel should impact my life was weak. So I went to a temple to serve an idol, and the idol took over me, and I was enslaved. And so uh, I met with a young man who is in college and says, Hey, I'm thinking of joining a fraternity. What do you think I should do? Well, well, for me, right away, is that, that oh, fire, hot, scary, stay away, Right? Well, I thought about it a little bit more, and I actually talked to several of my other Christian brothers who actually were in the fraternity when I was there. One was a faithful, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christian the whole time he was in the fraternity. The other was an atheist who came to know Jesus after the fraternity. You don't usually meet Jesus in a fraternity. Um, And and so, um, and, and both these guys loved Jesus know God's word, are growing in maturity in Christ, are leaders in their families, leaders in their church. And the one guy who wasn't a Christian while in the fraternity said, you know what, I just, with my conscience, I cannot encourage somebody to go and be in that environment because it will overtake you like a wave and, and, and you will not survive. And literally as we're talking, the other guy calls up, you know, and his, his name pops up, all right, buddy, I'll, I'll talk to you later, I'm going to switch over to this other guy. Other guy who, who knew and loved and had some... Some, some knowledge and love of who God is, said, oh, I would do it again in a heartbeat. Like, Whoa, really? Yeah. Yeah, Chris, how, how would I have known to help you if I wasn't there? How would I have known to call you to Christ if I, if I wasn't there? Now, I was there, and I, 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 didn't, I didn't dive into the same sins you did. I was present. I was, I was there. I knew you. I cared about you, but I didn't fall into sin. He goes, Chris, what, what would every school look like if every Christian pulled out? What would every business look like if every Christian pulled out? What would, what would government look like if every Christian pulled out? He said, no, I, I was there on mission to know how to engage with this world. But the difference was conscience. His was strong, the other weak. So I told this kid, it's your call. Do what glorifies God. Check your heart. You better know why you're there. Because for me, I lied to myself. I told myself I was strong. I'm going to go there and start a Bible study. Now they, they evangelized to me. So, so I actually started worshiping idols. And, and so, so apparently, th- there can be some difference. When you get to 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, whether you eat or whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So again, it's not about the details. It's about the heart. It's about, it's about glorifying God. And so this last section, as we close, shows the diversity of conscience when actually paired with exercising liberty, Christian liberty, can actually lead to some conflicts. Right? Because liberty can lead to real conflict and it can lead to disunity if we're not actually governing ourselves with humility and with self-denial. And so Paul doesn't Here's what I think is interesting. He doesn't compare and say, well, there's weak Christians over here. They're they're, they're pledges, they're JV, they're freshman team. And then there's varsity Christians over here with knowledge. No, no, no. He says there are the weak in conscience and there are the knowledgeable who are weak in love. He says, no, both of you are insufficient. Both of you are incomplete and are missing a piece of the pie. Both of you... um, uh, Both of you can easily fall into sin. And so, he says for for those who have a weak understanding of who they are in Christ, sometimes participating in in past activities, even ones that are okay for most people, could lead you to sin. 
It says, for you who are, are knowledgeable, you have so little consideration for your brother that you value your rights more than you do encouraging your brother towards righteousness. And so Paul says that, that for these, these knowledgeable Christians, not strong Christians, but for these knowledgeable Christians who have no love, he says their actions have become a stumbling block. And you're actually encouraging your brother to sin. See, what's interesting about that is that the word for stumbling block actually translates into a trap. He says, you're practicing your freedom, but you're laying a trap for your brother. And the word encourage is the same one he uses all the way back in verse 1 to say love builds up. Love encourages. But your actions are encouraging sin. And the reality is all of us we love Jesus, know God, are fighting sin, repenting of sin. And the last thing we need when we are in a battle, and if you're not in a battle, then you're probably losing. But the last thing you need when you're in a battle is to get shot by friendly fire. To have somebody, be in, somebody who supposedly loves you actually enabling you to sin, holding your hand, encouraging you, saying, no, I, I can do this, you can do this too. And Jesus has some things to say about that. Matthew 18, 6, he says, referring to children, but spiritually immature, he says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, Christians, to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. I don't, I don't think that one made it onto the Bible miniseries. I don't think they had Jesus saying that one, Right? That's intense, right? We don't lead with that one, right? But Jesus apparently takes sin very seriously, particularly our sin, but but causing brothers and sisters to sin. So what does this practically look like for us? What are we supposed to to do in in, in this world? And so uh, there's, there's some easy answers. We could do what, what fundamentalists do, what legalists do, and, and just make a lengthy list of activities that may potentially have the possibility to sin and just, just abstain, even if they're things that God has given us to enjoy, to glorify Him. So we can do things like say, no dancing. Really? No dancing? Pretty sure when David was worshiping, he was dancing. You could say, you know, don't eat, don't drink, don't do, do whatever it is. So we can just make a list, and, and then we can retreat from the world. We can maybe even stand outside the temples and protest, tell everybody why we don't go there, condemn anyone that does go there, right? I don't, I don't meet too many people that have that issue, but I know, I know they're out there. What I see mostly, though, is people that have said, no, I'm a, I'm a Corinthian. I can go ahead and just dive into that temple. Whatever the world says, I'm just going to embrace it. I'm going to encourage it. I'm going to celebrate it. I'm going I'm to dive, dive in all the way and just, just own this hope that the world has that we can all coexist. Regardless of how much destruction that might lead to myself personally, regardless of how much sin it might cause other people, regardless of, of, of how much it is an offense to God. And, and neither of these are, are valid options, right? Neither of these are for people that have knowledge of who God is and love God enough to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ, those who've been found and those who are still lost and need somebody to live with them in the fraternity for five years and then invite them, uh, five years, okay, I was in school a little too long. Um, you know, live with them and love them and care for them and encourage them towards godliness. So we're going to have to do something different, right? Love will have to lead knowledge. Truth will, will have to confront fiction and self-denial will have to govern our rights. And so what this looks like practically for us is that we're going to need to grow in knowledge of one another We're going to have to know our brothers and sisters well enough 
so that we can love each other more effectively. This means you're going to actually have to know these other people here. Actually know them well enough to know where do they stumble? What are, what are their um, what are their entrapments? What are mine? How can I encourage them towards that? How when I see them moving towards sin, it's sin for them, but for me it might be okay, say, no, no, I'm, I'm going to step out of here with you. That requires you to actually care enough about other people to get to know them. You may actually have to spend time to do that. You may actually have to join a road group. You may actually have to grab other people and invite them to lunch. You may actually have to, 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 to connect somehow so that you know that something for you might be okay. It may be okay for you to go to a bar and have a beer. It may not be okay for your brother who's an alcoholic. It may be okay for you to go spend the weekend um, going water skiing, but maybe not for the guy who worshipped it. Don't invite me water skiing. Um, right? If, 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 if you know your brother struggles to spend time, quality time with his family, but you maybe have an abundance of time, you might not be encouraging him to come join you on activities that pull him away from his family. Even good activities. If you know your brother has a spending problem, or your sister has a spending problem, you may not encourage her to go shopping with you. None of those things are bad. But see, all of a sudden now, we can't just make lists of right or wrong. We actually have to know each other well enough to not cause each other to stumble. And so, we seek to know and understand the idols of our hearts and the hearts of our brothers and sisters so we can encourage each other towards that which builds towards Christ. And then... We're actually going to have to go into the world. We can't all quit our jobs and go start a commune somewhere. That always ends badly, right? That never goes well when we all end up in the woods together by ourselves, right? Right. So, so we actually have to engage. And so rather than choosing to, as this text says, recline at the temple, meaning, meaning you're all in. And rather than standing outside and protest, it means you're going to actually have to faithfully engage with the systems of this society in a way that loves people where they're at and encourages them to something more, exposes their idols. That's challenging. There's no easy answers for that one. So you might have to study. You might have to study our society, but, but you know what? You better study this. So you can know more about God, know more about who you are and to be in response. Know more about the one true God so it's easier to spot an idol. So if you're a Christian now and you're saying, I think I'm that weak brother and sister. I'm the one that when I go to community group and people start throwing out theological terms, I'm lost like three words in, right? People start quoting dead guys. You're like, I don't know, right? You may need to actually grow. Weak in conscience is a place you're at, but it's not a place you're meant to stay. And so that means, regardless of what your past addictions are, let's be clear, we are all sin addicts. At some point, you're always in recovery, but you move to a place or strive to a place of restoration where you actually have the strength to be able to love and pour into other people. That's going to take knowledge. You're going to need to ask questions. You're going to need to spend time to actually grow. And if you know about God, but aren't known by Him and don't love other people, then you need to humble yourself. You need to spend time with other people. Rather than trying to show them what you know, show them who knows you. Love them the way God has loved you. Encourage the weaker brother. If you know something about God, teach somebody. Don't keep it to yourself. And so, if you've stumbled, if you've fallen into sin, if you feel like you're ensnared in idolatry right now, then know that that pain, that slavery that you're in right now does not need to be eternal. That, that Christ died in our place for our sins so that our destruction doesn't have to be permanent. And he rose again 
so that our lives can be empowered with freedom from sin to have liberty to worship him who actually saved us from sin. And that's more than merely as individuals. He saves us into this united family. He brings up together the weak and the unloving. And he puts us together in one family so that we can grow together. One in love, the other in knowledge. Coming together and so that we can know him more fully. We can know him more accurately. Love him more completely and love each other more. More. And so look around. Literally look around. These are your brothers and sisters. These are your brothers and sisters. It says, for whom Christ died. These people matter to him. You matter to him. And so, you matter enough that he set aside his liberty to go to the cross with his full knowledge of who you are and who, what your sin is and what you've done and how incomplete you are. And yet, he goes in our place. And he chose to sacrificially love to pull us out of our fiction of idolatry, to point us and enlighten us with the knowledge of the kingdom of God where our king is also our father and where we can love and worship him freely without fear, knowing that God loves us as a perfect father. And so now this is the point in our service where we will take communion. We're not praising Caesar. We're not praising our jobs and we're not praising our family. We are remembering Jesus Christ crucified. His blood shed for us. His body broken for us. We also give our tithes and our offerings. Not so that God will love us or bless us, but because he already has. And Mark's going to lead us in song. And we're going to sing praises. Because knowing about God reminds us to love God and find our joy in God. And we will sing our praises to him and then go and enjoy the beauty of his creation today. Please bow your heads and pray.